0: Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may also recognize me as the author of the multi-volume series Master Mentors, volume one and volume two, now out in print, audio, digital, and video by Lit Video Books, published by HarperCollins. Each year, I'm honored to be able to write a recap of sort of 30 of the most transformative interviews from this podcast. With the permission of 30 guests, I write a short, easy, breezy chapter about something they said that I think was particularly profound, transformative even, sometimes on air, oftentimes off air, and would love to have you pick up a copy. It's a great read in the evening, maybe 10 minutes per chapter to really revisit some of the most transformative things our guests have said over the last five years, now culminating in being the fastest-growing and largest weekly leadership podcast globally. In fact, our guest today is John Bacon. He is the author of the book, Let Them Lead. The tagline is, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. John is an entrepreneur, speaker, coach, author, and referred to by, I believe it was, Good Morning America as the real Ted Lasso. John, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thank you very much. That's quite an intro. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, as you know, it took me a couple times to get it right because some things are (laughs) actually done in post. John, tell me about this Good Morning America moniker. Why are they referring to you as, quote, the real Ted Lasso?
1: Well, that, of course, cuts both ways. If you've seen the show Ted Lasso, naturally, Um, a couple reasons. One, uh, Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe probably started that process when he reviewed the book and said it's where... Ted Lasso meets the Mighty Ducks. And unfortunately, this in this case, is all true. In my case, the Ted Lasso happens to be the worst player in school history. That's Ann Arbor Huron High School, my alma mater, home of the River Rats. I'm not making that up. And I still hold the record, Scott, not bragging, just saying, for the most games in a Huron uniform, 86, three straight seasons, played every game. With the fewest goals, zero, and you can't break that record. All the games and none of the goals. And I played forward, so <laughs> doesn't leave a lot to love there. And then, of course, what happens? The Muddy Duck side. I take over the worst team in school history, my alma mater, Ann Arbor Huron. That was zero, 22, and three the year before I started. few non-sports fans out there, the zero is where the wins go, okay? And 22 is losses and three is ties. Some website ranked us as the worst team in America, I'd have 1,256 teams. So that's pretty brutal right there, of course. And so worst team in America, worst player in school history. Yes, this is the marriage that we're looking for. But yet you managed to
0: get a book published about it. We're gonna talk about that today. So John, (laughs) great intro. Thank you for the energy as well and the vulnerability. Uh, Confession, Uh, I'm an Orlando boy, born and raised in Orlando, Florida. Transplanted out to Utah 30 years ago to join the Franklin Covey Company, lived a few places in between. Tennis was my sport. Uh, No one in Orlando that I knew played hockey. I've been on ice maybe three times in my life. And like you, when I was researching Scottie Pippen's book for his interview for the podcast, I learned a whole lot about basketball that I did not know. Or maybe didn't even want to (laughs) know. Similarly, I know a whole lot more about hockey after reading your book, but your book really isn't about hockey. Your book is about leadership lessons, building a culture, empowering people, changing your mindset about other people changing their mindset about themselves. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. I've got a couple of questions from you today about what you've learned, but why did you write this book?
1: Uh, great question. And, uh, and you're right. You don't have to know a thing about hockey or even sports itself to read the book with profit. So thank you for that. And my Orlando friend is our, our asset test right there. Uh, I wrote the book because I gave a TED Talk in 2014 about the experience, which was pretty popular. And then my editor from a previous book, Bo's Lasting Lessons with Bo Schimbecker, the old football coach, which was a bestseller, um, Rick Wolf. He did uh, uh, from the Gut with Jack Welch, 60 other business bestsellers. He's one of the top in the field. He saw the speech about five years later and s- called me up and says, Bacon, this is a book. And that's when we started getting serious about it. And it's actually a lucky break, Scott, to do the book about 15 years after I would finished coaching because then I had better perspective. I'd been out there in the business world a lot more, so I knew what worked and what didn't. But also, my players were between 35 and 40 years old. And I wrote all of them and said, please tell me what you remember, what you learned. I got 150 pages back from them. Many of them, most of them are leaders now in various fields. And, uh, and their insights there are sprinkled throughout the book about what worked and what didn't. And that gives it a lot more value, I think. In fact, John, if I'm
0: not mistaken, you've either authored or co-authored about 12 books. This was not your first book. It's one in a long series of you being an author. I want to talk about first generational differences. In the last decade, no small amount of ink has been spilled on, you know, boomers and traditionalists and Gen X and Gen Y and this and that and the other. And there's a whole cottage industry around leading with generational differences. And then as of late, you hear a little bit of a contrarian voice to say, you know, most of that's bunked at the end, bunk, at the end of the day, people just want this and this and this. And yes, there are some nuances, but there's kind of two camps going on, both monetizing it. What have you learned about the conventional wisdom around leading through generational differences? What do you think is legitimate and should be given some attention? And what are just principles of leading people, whether they're 18 years old or
1: 48? Great question. It's the one I think that's probably the central issue of this book. Uh, Right now, HR, labor, uh, recruiting, retaining, training people is the biggest complaint I hear from corporations and other organizations and probably you too. And I get it. I've seen it. I've been coaching and teaching now for about 25, 30 years. I teach at the University of Michigan, Northwestern's Medill School, and elsewhere on the side. So I know what they're talking about, and I've seen some of these behavioral changes. And yet, the big mistake we're making right now, I kind of fall into both camps, the old school and the new school. Old school is do not lower your expectations. Do not lower your standards. Raise them. The best advice I got from my mentor, Al Clark at Culver Academies, who was the uh, nation's winningest high school hockey coach with 1,017 wins, also the math department chairman, a very unusual guy. He said, the first thing you've got to do is to make it special to play for Huron. And I said, well, we're already the worst team in America. That's pretty special. <laughs> he said, no. The easiest way to make it special is to make it hard. The easiest way to make it special is to make it hard, which seems paradoxical and certainly against what we're hearing now about Casual Fridays and Taco Tuesdays and kombucha machines and so on. Uh, He says, no, don't do that. And the proof is, look, the Navy SEALs, hardest job in the world, maybe, they pay about $54,000 and they take only 6% of those who apply. The Peace Corps, you need a college degree, a rigorous interview process for what? A few hundred bucks a month to dig ditches and other jobs in the world's poorest countries. uh, And they take one out of six. How can they afford to do this? They sell the mission not the salary. They don't deny that it's hard. They don't apologize that these jobs are hard. They brag about how hard it is, and that way you get the people you want. And people often say, well, you can't get them all this way. I don't want them all. You don't want them all. McDonald's gets them all. You don't want that. You want the elite. You want the the hard chargers. And what was striking about that is when we started our summer workouts one week after school got out, four months before the season began, These are all voluntary workouts. I cannot make you come by state law. All right. We're in the weight room. We're on the track. Everyone threw up the track at some point or other. Sorry about that image, including the coaches, by the way. We worked very hard. Not one player quit. This is not the Navy SEALs we're talking about. This is the worst team in America. They're that hungry for leadership, that hungry for someone to believe in them, that hungry for high standards. So do not lower the bar, raise it, and you'll get a better client pool.
0: John, when you handed responsibility back to the team for goal setting, discipline, decision making, it's kind of a tenant of the book, your leadership methodology, was there anything you did in particular or in hindsight that worked well serendipitously that leaders today could be listening to say, okay, so the correlation between the worst hockey high school team in America and this book on leadership, what advice would you give leaders today that are struggling with their teams, with empowerment issues to say, I'm gonna turn this over to you all. How do you encourage leaders to take that risk with recognizing that there is risk in it? Is there anything culturally or a belief in people's own competence that you have to reinforce before you do that?
1: Great question again, I keep on saying that Scott, but damn, you're good at this. So yeah, I got that book broken down into three chapters, I'm sorry, three sections, 12 chapters total. And the first one is what I just described. Uh, Focus on behaviors, not results. Raise the bar, don't lower it. That's the first thing. We're a serious operation, let them know that right away. Second step is gaining their trust. And there are a lot of ways to do that, which we talk about in the book. The third step is the hardest one. It takes a lot of courage. The people who are willing usually to have high standards are the least willing to give up control and vice versa. So in that sense, that's very much new school, giving up control to your people versus holding it all for yourself. A few things came up when you asked the question Uh, one i would say in terms of goals i let the team the seniors pick the goals every season for our team i picked two highest grade point and fewest penalties because i cared about those and i know they didn't but three through ten they spent a couple days talking to the entire team to come up with the additional goals we wanted 10 goals for the season we laminate those we put them on the wall we keep track every week we put them in their wallets by the way it's a very serious business but they determine the goals, not us. That's a gutsy move right there. They will always set the bar higher than you would, and they get buy-in then because it's their goals. That's one very practical thing you can do tomorrow. Another idea stole flat out from the Japanese while doing a story on Japanese hockey for ESPN magazine, inevitably titled, Scott, Huckiman. There we go. You can't avoid that one, of course, but uh, senpai kohai, which means mentor-mentee, I know that's a topic that is exactly up your alley. We don't do a very good job of that here in the United States. But in in Japan, you are assigned when you sign up with Sony or Toyota or almost any company in Japan, you're assigned an older mentor and you two are basically locked together for the rest of your career, essentially. So in my case, we had upperclassmen and underclassmen, ninth graders and seniors, 14 year olds and 18 year olds. Big gap there in many ways. And those guys uh, were in the same locker room together in the same stalls, basically. Uh, they roomed together on the road. They're on the same bus seat and so on, team dinners. And they ate that up. I had no idea. That's serendipitous. I just threw it out there. And they ate it up so much, they were begging me to do it again the next year. So that was a shock. So that's one thing that bonds you together. The third thing was purely, largely dumb luck. And it worked out incredibly well. My third year, we got a 14-game winning streak. We finally lose two games to top teams. One team had a finished goalie, man. That's, that's cheating, I swear to God. But anyway. So we lose two games. What do you do? I called up our captain, Chris Fragner, and said, "Tomorrow night, captain, you seniors are going to coach the entire game." And he says, "What does that mean?" I said, "You're going to find out." They get to the rink. The dry erase board is empty. Uh, the score sheet is empty. The seniors pick the 20 guys who are going to dress. The five guys are going to start. And during a hockey game, you change on the fly. They did all that against a ranked team, and they won, not me, six to nothing. It takes courage to do it this way. And it can flop. But you, it's like t- teaching some, someone how to ride a bike. Sooner or later, you got to let go of that seat or it's not going to work. It is scary. I know that. I had a seven-year-old. Um, it is terrifying. But you have to do it for them to reach their potential. So that's the hard part. John, our
0: co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who passed a decade ago, but of course the namesake of our company and arguably one of the most uh, influential leadership minds of our generation, said many wise things. Among them, he said, no involvement, no commitment. And it was, I think, Voltaire that said, uh, you know, common knowledge isn't common practice. These are intuitive leadership principles you're sharing with us. But they're also, they're hard. Because if there's a conundrum. Because I've been a leader of people, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. And as the leader, it's easy to think okay, well, the buck stops with me. I'm going to get fired. I won't get promoted if I don't deliver the results that my leader needs from me. I know my job is to achieve those results within and through my people, but not all of them are always going to be self starting and proactive and disciplined and take it upon themselves. And there's this conundrum in leadership, this balance of Wanting to empower your team, wanting to have them set the goals. You've been given goals from on high, but you also don't want to turn, the, turn it over to them because you feel like, well, they don't have the insight or the maturity or the responsibility to deliver on what you need. I mean, there is this sort of tension that goes on in leadership Anything you would say about that maybe speak to like that mid-level manager that right now I'm speaking her, her language, right? Which is like, right, yes, I want to be more empowering, but my team, I don't feel like, and you write about this in the book, I don't feel like they're up to it. I don't feel like they care enough.
1: It's a broad question I know. Tackle that however you'd like. Sure. Uh, you raise the central issue, really. And this is one we come across all the time. First thing, and by the way, I'm a big devotee, of course, of your old friend Stephen Covey, and I've read that book. I've read a lot of his books, but the seven habits I've read it four or five, six times. Easy. Not quite seven, I guess. But don't confuse simple with easy. That's my first statement about that. Everything I'm telling you, everything we're talking about, I would argue most of what Stephen Covey had to say, it's simple, but it's not easy. And don't confuse that. That's why so few people do it this way. It takes courage, it takes guts. Undeniably, because it is scary to hand the steering wheel to your teenage kid, but you have to do it. Basically, and I see it kind of like driver's ed. I drive, you watch. You can't just hand them the keys. You have to train them first. I drive, you watch, you drive, I watch. Then and only then, step three is I hand you the keys. It's still scary, but it's not nearly as scary as it would be if we hadn't had the first two steps. I drive, you drive. Basically, we both watch, so that's one thing there. Second thing as far as turning the keys over, you have to. There's no other way to do it. If it's you versus your people, you lose. It can't just be you. We had what we called layers of leadership. I've got a chapter on that. If it's me versus the team, you're outnumbered, I lose. Layers of leadership says that we're all leading. One of the guys I coached against, a guy named John Cooper, uh, was coaching Lansing Catholic Central 20 years ago. He's now the head coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning in your old backyard. He's won two straight Stanley Cups, and I'm free this season, so I guess our careers have diverged somehow, Scott, (laughs) his great line, bad teams, nobody leads, good teams, coaches lead, great teams, everybody leads, and you will never achieve greatness without everyone getting buy-in, and they get buy-in by the scary part, by making them do things sometimes, putting them in charge of things, and the more you can do that, the more involved they are. They don't show up sick when they know that you're depending on them the next day, so I noticed that sickness and all kinds of stuff go down when you do it this way. John, if someone were
0: to ask me to describe your value proposition in the book, and the book itself, I think I would probably say the book really is a, a lesson in leadership maturity. <coughs> because my favorite chapter is number four. You call it, make sure you're the dumbest guy in the room, dumbest person in the room. It reminds me a lot of Liz Wiseman's work, a good friend of ours and a guest on our podcast. And we have the license to her uh, multiplier's content in our, on our uh, all-access pass. One of Liz's you know, great adages is, You know, you aren't the genius, but rather the genius maker. You take that a little step further. You talk that you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You just need to figure out who is. And then you take it a step further by saying, hire people who are loyal, but strong enough to disagree. I want to have you riff on that for a moment, but I'm going to do a quick segment. I host a second podcast for Franklin Covey called C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. Always put your name in the title of a podcast. It's harder to kick you off as the host. (laughs) They're on to me. Trust me. And one of the interviews on that podcast was a man named Niran Chandri. He's the CEO of Panera, Panera Foods. In addition to owning Panera, they own Noah's Bagels and Einstein's Bagels and, and, and Caribou Coffee, a bunch of companies, thousands of employees. And I think the smartest thing of many wise things Niran said on that episode was that at Panera, they have a robust culture of disagreement. In fact, in his executive team meetings, they do not adjourn until someone has taken a, disson- a dissonant point of view, right? The, is the dissident, if you will, the disagreeer. They don't want an antagonistic culture, but they don't want to all be in groupthink and think alike. He very much likes this idea of having leaders who are loyal, but strong enough to disagree. These are some great points. Again, says easy, does hard common Mm knowledge isn't common practice. Talk about how leaders at all levels can can get to the point of confidence to find the person on their team who is in fact noticeably, palpably smarter than they are, be comfortable with that, but also then take it a step further to say, I need people who are loyal to me, but who are strong enough to disagree. Riff on that.
1: That is, uh, it's back to your earlier equation about the old versus the new. On the old side, I would say the two best reasons to fire somebody, and you will have to occasionally, sad to say, uh, dishonesty and disloyalty, because I just can't work with those. At that point, I can't trust you. If we don't have trust, none of the rest of it, I can't hand you the car keys. None of the rest of it's going to work. So that's one thing. My My goal, Scott, was to be the dumbest guy in the coach's room. And let me just tell you, I greatly exceeded my expectations. How about that? Uh, we had guys who played in Sweden, guys who were some of the best players in our city. And I did not rank first in any category you really care about to lead this team. But I was always in the top two or three. But the, the deal was, when we leave the coach's room, I am the head coach. And if that's not understood, we're going to have a problem. In this room, you can say anything to me. The door is shut. Disagreements are welcome. Uh, but outside, you have to be loyal. So that's old school there. The new part, although it comes from Wrigley, the gum magnate in the 1930s, he had a great line he said if two people in business always agree one of them is unnecessary and that's back to warren buffett uh, he said you know you, you don't want to be the smartest guy if you think you're the smartest guy in the room find a better room that's the idea there so you need help like this this is what allows you to hand over control because i have very good people around me so i can give them control i can let them coach games whole games by themselves because they can do it uh, but to get there you need that trust factor obviously now look if you're worried about credit, and I know in big corporations that can be a big deal, any any organization really, don't worry. Because when you're the head coach of a winning team, when you're the chair of a winning division, uh, when you're the CEO, you know, the C-suite and all that, look, if your team is winning, if your company is making money and all that good stuff, you will get more credit than you deserve anyway. And your job then is to give it away to the people who made that happen. But don't worry, credit will find you regardless.
0: John, let's talk about dishonesty and disloyalty. I think we know the definition of what qualifies someone as being dishonest. But, you know, loyalty has a broad debate around it. You can be too loyal, you're not loyal enough. Are you loyal to a fault? Is loyalty become a blind spot for you? How would you define loyalty as an asset? You said there are two things you don't tolerate, dishonesty and disloyalty. As a seasoned business entrepreneur, author, coach, and sports coach,
1: sports leader, how do you define disloyalty? Uh, again, tricky question. Honestly, I go back to Justice Potter, who's describing, here we go, Scott, pornography in a yeah. court case, the Supreme Court. But yeah. his line was, I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. And ultimately, you gotta trust your gut on that one. When does disagreement become disloyalty? The biggest, the one test I would give is this. Uh, if, you, if you ever have a problem with somebody, including me, you have two choices. You can keep it to yourself, or you can bring it to the person you have a problem with. So loyalty goes both ways. And loyalty grows when I have a problem with you and I bring you behind closed doors in my office and we have it out and you're allowed to disagree with me and and tell me what I'm missing, all right? And likewise, if you have a problem with me, we handle it here privately in my office. You don't talk to the players, you don't talk to the parents, the Ann Arbor News, our hockey friends, your colleagues, the secretaries, you name it, the stockholders, the board members, no, none of that. You bring it to me. That to me is the ultimate test of loyalty when you have a problem What do you do? Do you have the guts to go face to face? If we don't have that kind of courage, we're going to have a problem. So that's where loyalty comes in. And with it, you have to be courageous. And I look at Putin right now in Russia. Look, he had a lot of yes men around that table telling him that this is going to be easy. And it wasn't. And now it's all their problem. So you don't need yes men or yes women. You need people strong enough who trust you enough to disagree when they have to. You know, perhaps I'm naive
0: or I'm right, and this isn't meant to be a political <laughs> statement, but you know, I look to the U.S. presidency as what should be a bastion, a model of leadership. And I think some people who've uh, won that position have been better than others. Uh, I, I am disappointed in, I think, how our previous president modeled that because I think he abused the word loyalty. I think he demanded loyalty from others, but I've not seen him sh- share that same value. And in fact, most people he demanded loyalty from now have sold him out, almost every one oh, yeah. of them. And you mentioned about face-to-face. I, I remember how frequently he would talk about how he'd fired ex-secretary through a tweet or through whatever it was It had someone else. And, you know, to me, that just without, without critiquing his presidency, I'm sure there are some things that he's done well that I'm not giving him credit for. Of course he has. But it seems to me that as a leader, you're absolutely right. You kind of can't define it, but you know it when you see it. You know it when you feel it. And you're right, old-fashioned leadership, there is some value in that of just having these high courage conversations face-to-face and becoming comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Because sometimes leadership requires you to be really uncomfortable and move outside your comfort zone.
1: Well, what did uh, Harry Truman say, speaking of presidents? Uh, he said, if you're, in, if you're a leader in Washington, D.C. and you want a friend, get a dog. So <laughs> sad to say, old school, leadership can be lonely sometimes. You are when, when there has to be a bad cop, you're the bad cop. The good cops are the assistant coaches. The good cops are the associate deans, these people, um, the, the, the vice chairman, etc. cetera. So that's gonna happen sometimes and you're not gonna be popular all the time. If you're doing your job right, you're just not going to be. That's sad but true. Um, but your other point about if I have a problem with you and I bring it to your face directly, you will not like it the day I, we have that conversation. Yes. The next day, there'll be a bruise. But in three or four days, We'll be better off than we were a week ago because now you know you can trust me because if I have a problem with you, you're the first and maybe the only person ever to hear about it. And that builds trust more than anything. Look, Scott, we've all been criticized to our faces. We've all been criticized behind our backs and neither one tickles. I don't like either one, neither do you. All right. But which one feels worse to your face or behind your back? Behind your back there, you've lost them forever. They're going to find out about it and they will never work for you the same way. It's got to be face to face.
0: John, I want to end with a conversation around academics. Uh, Franklin mm-hmm. Covey, I believe we, we like to think of ourselves as the most trusted leadership company in the world. We have a we very large, are. thank you, we have a very large education division. We are I'm in where? thousands of schools across the world teaching our Leader in Me program based on a book by the same name and also Sean Covey's. Concepts of the seven habits of highly effective teens. So, we have a large education audience that listens to this podcast and one from that team. If I'm not mistaken, you're quite proud of the fact that in addition to building one of the strongest records in hockey, that your team also had the highest grade point average in this state. I may have mixed that up a little bit, but will you maybe breathe some confidence back in our listeners that there are coaches? That aren't just developing athletes they're developing adults they're developing people with skills and self-confidence and self-esteem and recognizing that you know you are in school to build an education to build skills and communication skills and such that are as important maybe even more important than hockey because you're probably not going to become a professional hockey player <laughs> except for my three sons who apparently are going to become NBA and be on the usta so talk a little bit about the pride and maybe the leadership style you employed to reinforce the role that academics and sportsmanship and athletic ability had together?
1: Sure. I get that right from my mentor, Al Clark. I mentioned earlier, he's the math department chairman at Culver Academy. He's a Phi Beta Kappa math graduate from University of New Hampshire, who's also drafted by the NHL. is again, a rare guy. So what I learned from him is academics and athletics one does not detract from the other it's not zero sum as Stephen covey would talk about uh that one actually buttresses the other smarter kids make it easier to coach them all right more discipline in the classroom equals more discipline on the ice this is not zero sum these two complement each other and build on each other and our first year also there's also the practical fact that if you're ineligible uh, based on your grades then i can't play you so there's that incentive as well it's a weird system scott or the hockey coach has more incentive to make sure you pass than the history teacher and i've been both uh, but that's where we are in this culture i guess but anyway so i did monday night after practice 7 to 9 p.m we'd bring in pizzas we would have a two-hour study table uh, and they requested at the rink versus at our high school that's their call and I, I went with their direction and just that was enough to pretty much end it and i would post the grade points on the wall every semester that told you that you're responsible not merely for yourself you're responsible to all your teammates to be eligible. That's one thing we don't do in education too often. We don't make you accountable to your peers. That is so much more powerful than being accountable to your parents or a teacher. Because in high school level, you care far more about being cool than you do about a lot of things. And I got a chapter, make peer pressure work for you. That's one reason why we did it. And we're very proud, we had a 3.27. If you know anything about high school hockey, that's miraculous, trust me. This is not a tennis team we're talking about, your sport. Course, that's very unusual for our high school hockey team. Well, becoming one of the number four team in the state in ability. So we went from dead last in the nation to number fifty-three. We passed ninety-seven percent of the country in three years while becoming the best academic team in the state. So and that one was not again opposed to the other, both built each other and made the whole structure, made the whole team better.
0: I'm delighted that you reinforced that. That actually is the premise of franklin covey's book the four disciplines of execution this idea of peer accountability and allowed the team to set the goals like i don't
1: know that come yeah, on scott thank you one. the leader the can books. have
0: veto power <laughs> but it's a great reminder send us off with uh, your perspective is that an outlier paradigm for coaches in high school and in college do you find in your experience that the majority of competitive collegiate and high, th- high school sports the coach is as focused on that same mentality or do they, I, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna paint athletic directors and coaches in any particular light. Right. What do you think is the default mindset of most coach, coaches when it comes to the balance of those two things?
1: I think most ADs and most coaches are well-intended. I'm a big backer of education, of course, and teachers, and I've been one, so has my mom. Uh, but no, they don't do it this way. That's why we beat them. That's the beauty part. So look, I can give this playbook to anybody out there. Um, And they saw what we did before games and after games and so on. uh, And we were very rarely copied. So they should have copied us, but they didn't usually. So and the reason is it's hard to do it this way. It's simple, but it is hard. And uh, that's one of the great premises right there. Of course, one of the biggest things we always talked about is very simple. Also, it was never about the hockey. If you are a win at all costs program and you lose, you have nothing. You have no values to fall back on. You have no moral center that you rally around. And likewise, if you're a for-profit company and that's all you are, all right, well, sooner or later COVID's going to hit or supply chain or something and knock out your profits. Now, what do you have? If that's all you were ever about, now you have nothing and they're going to transfer. They're going to leave your company. So they stick with you when you have the values that get you through the hard times and those keep your head on straight during the good times, and I know, we both know, that is exactly what Covey was, uh, was arguing for, and we believed it.
0: John Bacon, New York Times bestselling author, coach, speaker, and according to Good Morning America, the real Ted Lasso, your book is called Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. Hard to repeat it without laughing. Great book, great <laughs> lessons. Uh, what's next for you,
1: John? Uh, I'm going to keep doing this, of course. We're turning this into a movie with uh, Jim Bernstein, who did Mighty Ducks 3. So we're working on the screenplay right now. I've not sold it yet, but I'm optimistic of that. And I do my own podcast. And if uh, if I'm lucky, I'll get you on it. Let Them Lead by Bacon.com.
0: I see it on social media frequently. John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Scott. And thanks, everybody. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.